I want us to talk about vision. I want us to talk about where, as a church, we want to go in the next few years. When you try and create a vision, you can try and create a vision for all time. You know, if you want one vision that's going to last you from now and kind of forever, then all you do, rightly, is you reinstate the Bible. Um, Because the Bible is our vision statement. So our previous vision statement was that we want to make disciple-making disciples of Jesus. And that's always true, and that was, but it was essentially a restatement uh, of Matthew 28. So that's kind of taken for granted. And for some time, um, elders have been seeking a vision that's more specific. One that is still clearly biblical, but sets us certain priorities for the next few years. So we're looking for a biblical vision which kind of um, sets us priorities... Uh, for the next few years, a, a vision for this moment in time, and it is simply this. And there it is, you've seen it already. We want to be a church in which God moves as we witness through word-based oneness. It's come out of a, uh, I, I say a season, I'm going to use that word a lot, uh, by which I mean just a sort of indeterminate medium-length um, time. It's come out of time of, of prayer uh, and thinking and lots of talking amongst the, the elders. If you look really carefully at it, you will find the four W's um, that Rob mentioned last week that he got from an author that I can't remember. But if you look really carefully, you'll, you'll find Rob's four W's. Though I like to think that what we've said says what that writer was trying to say better than he said it through his four W's, if you see what I mean. I think this is what he was trying to say. And so it, it joins together the four things, Rob, so don't worry if you weren't here and you didn't see it, uh, in a way that's consistent with John's gospel as, that we've been studying, which we'll go back to next week. But it's also demonstrated clearly in the early chapters of Acts, which is why we had a little look at Acts 2 and Pentecost earlier on. And that's where we're going to turn uh, this morning. So we want to be a church in which God moves. We could have said a church through which God moves. We could have said a church in and through which God moves. Um, Prepositions kind of become important at this point in time, but please take that as read. We want to be a church in and through uh, which God moves. So take it it that we mean both, but let's turn firstly to, to Acts 1. Ian, coming up on the screen? Is that all right? Acts 1, verse 1, it's on page 1092. Later on, I'll come back to Acts 2.42. This is the beginning, isn't it, of of Luke's second book, uh, the sequel to Luke's Gospel. And Luke writes this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
And then they gathered round him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood, stood beside them. I love this bit. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Stop there. Go back to PowerPoint if we can. What did Jesus promise his disciples? Jesus promised them power. Power from the Holy Spirit. What was the purpose of giving them power? It was power to be witnesses. And they were to wait until it came. So what did they do? They joined together constantly in prayer and they waited. And then on the day of Pentecost came the events of Acts 2, uh, which we saw summarised on the video. Again, they were all together, together in a house, probably the same place. They were one in location, but I think there's an implication that they were one in spirit with with a small s. And the power came through the agency of the Holy Spirit with audible and visible manifestations. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, capital S, drove them outdoors. It's interesting, isn't it? They were in the house. Holy Spirit came upon them. What happened? Boom. They, they kind of, uh, they're kind of like, they're driven to get outdoors and to, and to say something. So they were enabled to speak other human languages, which I think were probably specific to the people who were in Jerusalem at that moment in time. And they witnessed In other words, they spoke about the mighty works of God. It's there in Acts 2 if you want to find it. So we want to be a church in which God moves to empower us, to give us courage and assurance and the drive it takes to send us outdoors to talk about Jesus, the mighty works he has done. I'm not talking about, you know, standing in bandstands or on Staines Heights Street, but wherever you are at outside the church. And the question arises then, and this is something I've been reading about in, in recent weeks, should we, should we expect another Pentecost? Excuse me. Does that mean we should be expecting or looking for another Pentecost? Some Christian scholars see Pentecost as unrepeatable. 
And in some ways, they're right. This gift of, of, of tongues, of, of multiple different human tongues, is like a reverse of the curse that God put on humankind uh, of Babel back in uh, Genesis uh, 11. Uh, God cursed human beings for, for trying to um, be their own gods and giving them different languages. That's the story in Genesis 11. This is a reverse of that. And in that sense, as the first time it happens, it's, it's a one-off. I think the tongues of fire is a one-off. I don't see that happening again in the Bible. I don't know whether it's happened through uh, church history, but I'm not aware of it. So I think that's a one-off. Sound of the wind doesn't happen again in Acts. So the one occasion, the place um, where they are uh, praying is, is, is shaken. Gifts of tongues is given at least on two occasions, again in Acts. <clears throat> but what happens here where people speak somebody else's known language is rare. I think across church history. It's rare, but not unheard of. I think I heard a story, and I can't remember where it was from now, uh, of a Staines Kong trip to Israel. Somebody, somebody stick their hand up if they know what, know what I'm talking about. I'll, I'll come and find it. You can come and find out. I think come and ask John Hawthorne or Ken. <clears throat> Does happen. So is it a one-off? Yes, in some senses. But no in others. <laughs> or is it a pattern for every day? Is what happened at Pentecost something you can claim? Something you can go to God and say, I want this now. Is it a one-off or is it a pattern for every day? I think it's neither. There are aspects of Pentecost that are not repeated, but that does not mean that a pouring out of the Holy Spirit cannot happen again. But that does not mean that all the gifts and experiences of Pentecost can be claimed as our weekly norm. And I think if you've tried it, you'll probably find that it hasn't happened. And the danger of claiming it as our our weekly norm is that we end up pretending about something that hasn't happened. And we read from uh, 1 Corinthians that the gifts of the Spirit are given as God himself sovereignly determines. So it is not for us to go and claim them. You can go and ask. By all means, go and ask. But they cannot be claimed because they are sovereignly given by God. So I think, and this is consistent with church history, that God chooses us, chooses to bless with this kind of power sporadically and on occasions across church history and in seasons in the church. And what I'm suggesting is that we seek for such a season again. We have seen such seasons in the past in this church. And I suggest we seek it again. So, it, Because if we think Pentecost is unrepeatable, we resign ourselves to too little expectation of what God might do. But if we think Pentecost is our daily experience, I think we pretend that great things have happened when maybe they have not. Where do you go on that understanding? Where we go, I suggest, is that we wait and pray expectively in an active unity. That's what they did. They waited and they prayed and they looked to God to come back and, uh, and empower them 
in a new way. Whilst getting on with Christian life and witness with what we've been given in the meantime. Lots more we could say, but let's just hit the headlines today and you can come and ask me questions afterwards. How will God move? What will it look like? Well, this is not about, when I say we want to be a church in which God moves, this is not about whether we are a charismatic church or not. It is not primarily about whether we believe that God gives miraculous gifts to his church for three reasons. One, the gifts are not the central matter. The gifts are not the central issue at stake. We want more than simply potentially miraculous or unmiraculous gifts around the church. The central matter is the glorifying of Jesus Christ. The central matter is conversions. People coming to know Jesus Christ for the first time. People being saved from eternal punishment of God. So when we say that we want God to move, we mean we want him to rescue people, to save people, and we want him to change us. He's already rescued people. We want him to come and apply the gospel to us in such powerful ways that we have a a deep assurance so that we can witness more effectively. What do you think is the thing that most hinders our our witness to and for Christ? Yeah, it's a lack of courage. It's fear. It's fear. And so when I say I want God to move, I want him to come uh, and bring us a a confidence in the gospel, uh, an experience of his love, a confidence in his assurance that goes to the deepest places of our lives and frees us and empowers us to go and talk about Jesus so that people are saved. So gifts are not the central matter. And actually the gifts are given sovereignly by God. When you're seeking Christ and when you're seeking his glory, God sovereignly gives his gifts. They're all one in the work, uh, the work of one and the same spirit, Paul says, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. I don't mind if you want to seek them, Paul says at one point, to, to seek the greater gifts, but actually even more than seeking the greater gifts, we want to uh, seek Christ, and knowing Christ and glorifying Christ and seeing people come to Christ. So those who argue that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased are wrong. Can't see that anywhere in Scripture. Those, I think, I think again, those who argue that they're there just with the taking, they're kind of on the shelf and you can pick them off are wrong because they're given as God determines. And church history suggests that they come in seasons. It's not wrong to to seek them, but they're not the central matter. If they happen, they happen, and if they don't, they don't. And three, we should expect the unexpected. Why, why do we seek an, an, from an endlessly created God something that he's already done before? So when I say we want to see God move, a number of you will have a different picture in your mind. If we'd, if we'd asked Rob, we, he would have seen him move through revivals in Youth of Christ in South Africa in the 1970s or something. Uh, a num- you know, a number of you were here in the kind of 60s and 70s when, when God moved, and you'll have a picture um, in your mind of, of what that looks like. But when we ask God to move, why should an endlessly creative God do the same thing again? So I suggest we expect 
um, the unexpected. And sometimes what God does in a prelude to a work of power is, is a work of purification. So sometimes before God takes us into a place of power, he takes us into a place of pain. A place of darkness, a place of doubt, a place of uncertainty where we wrestle with our own selves. So often I think God needs to take us to a place where we are conscious of, of how sinful we are before he moves us into a place uh, of power and of confidence. And part of what we should expect and want God to do, it's not about working in here. We want him to do that. But when we say we want God to to move, we want him to move out there. So you remember Mark and Sarah's story. Um, I can tell it because they're not here this morning. Uh, They've been walking past the church and they both independently had a sense, I want to go there. The Lord sovereignly called them, did a work without any of us involved, and they came in. We should want, when we say we want God to move, we want to move by his spirit out there and not just in here what should we do what do we do in the meantime Jesus called them to wait not suggesting that we now just have meetings upon meetings and we, and we wait uh, for, the, for the spirit to come in the Old Testament you can read about uh, a governor of Israel called Zerubbabel I know, it's, it's great, isn't it? It's just, it's just um, humorous on its own. Um, uh, I, I should get, I, Richard, I'll get you to come and tell a story about Zerubbabel at some point. And we're gonna, um, <clears throat> he was a governor of Judah, which was the southern part of Israel, after their exile um, into Babylon, when they'd been allowed to come back and, and to start rebuilding in the land. And work had started on rebuilding the, the temple, which had been destroyed. But this... Rebuilding had stalled. And part of the reason it had stalled is because it just looked so pathetic compared to the, to the might and the grandeur of, um, of Solomon's temple. It was never going to be as, as grand. So the people kind of lost heart. And Zechariah um, gets a number of, of words of prophecy, so does Haggai, um, to Zerubbabel. Um, one of the things he says is that it will be not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, it doesn't matter how weak or insignificant you feel because this will be accomplished by the power of my spirit. But also a warning is sounded a couple of verses later, Zechariah 4. Who dares despise the day of small things? So here is the rubber bull and a remnant of Israel and they're building a, a little temple um, to the Lord, which is never going to be as grand as it was in the great days of Israel. <clears throat> and the danger is, they say, it's a day of small things, so I'm just not going to get involved. It's just not worth doing. Uh, and the word of the Lord comes to them. Who dares despise the day of small things? So we're living in the UK, in Christian terms, we're living um, in the day of small things. The church in this country is... It is ridiculed and marginalised and it is nothing like the days when the church was central to society and driving agendas and making social change. But we're not to despise it. If that is all that God gives us, then we shall carry on working for him 
with all that we've got, giving all that we've got, talking to people about Jesus, seeing them come to the Lord, we pray in kind of odd ones and twos over the years, we will not despise the day of small things. We won't shut up shop or circle the wagons. We will carry on doing what we're doing, and we're doing it more successfully now than we have done uh, for some years, but we will pray for more. Pray for a bigger move of the Lord. We want to see revival ultimately, and we should be praying for it. And when we pray for that, whether you pray for this personally or whether you're praying for this for a church, you need to be patiently urgent or urgently um, patient. There's the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he says you've got to be urgent in prayer. If something matters to you, you will go to God uh, with it kind of urgently. But there has to be a kind of deliberate patience that you keep coming to him urgently, because otherwise you come up to him urgently but spasmodically. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that's kind of undermined so many of our prayers and why we don't see prayers answered. So you need this mixture of urgency. We want something from God and we're going to go with urgency uh, and, uh, and pray with, with passion. But you have to have a patience that means that you're going to carry on praying with urgency until we see an answer or until our end of our lives if we don't see an answer in our lifetimes. And we do. What should, church, what should church look like then in the meantime? Well, I'm going to turn to Acts 2, and verse 42. It's over the page, page 1094. So Acts 2, verse 42, and we'll get that up on the screen. So we've, we've read a bit from Acts 1. We've seen on the video uh, what happened in Acts 2. Uh, The blessing came upon them and then Peter uh, stood up and preached. And then at the end of the chapter, we find out what happened after Peter preached. After he preached, 3,000 people, uh, there were 3,000 new believers added to the church. And then this is what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, take a little, um, take stock, take a little inventory of what they did. They devoted themselves to getting teaching, to fellowship, to breaking the bread, and to prayer, is what we're told. God continued to work wonders. They committed to a kind of financial equality, or at least a, a financial, making sure nobody was in need in the church. They met regularly in varied ways, sometimes over food, They were filled with praise, and the Lord continued to add to their numbers. This is what happened after a major uh, impact and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Hence, they are radical in ways which should already have made you very slightly nervous. But if this is what the Spirit does when he comes in, in power, I suggest that this is what 
uh, a church should look like. That's Luke's point, I think, in recording it at this point. And what do they do? Well, this is what they do. They witness through word-based oneness. And that's what Jesus commanded them to do. He says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So as a command, with a kind of, I'm not, promise is not quite the right word, but I can't think of the right word. People will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The oneness that they exhibit is a witness in itself. And a lack of oneness is a hindrance to witness. So we need to have a, a oneness in the church. How do we measure ourselves against uh, their kind of oneness? Well, firstly, I think they were in, in and out of each other's homes quite a lot. Is that not the impression you get as you read that? We're not saying everything that could be said out of this passage. How do we measure our oneness? Their Christian lives were not confined where they took a couple of hours on a Sunday and a couple of hours midweek. That's one of the ways you know that the Holy Spirit is work, isn't it? When your Christian life spills out over and beyond two or three meetings and when your Christian life breaks over into your social life. Let me give you an example. Maybe, maybe again, slightly extreme example. My sister lives in a terraced house uh, in Bristol, one of the... No, I don't think it's the roughest part, but it's a fairly rough part of Bristol. And she works for a charity called Bristol Homeless Network. And they work with failed asylum seekers to, to help them get asylum and, and look after them because there are these people who... Uh, seems to be the, the normal process for asylum seeking is you get rejected first time round. So there's a whole raft of people who are, who are left with, with nothing... Her next-door neighbour works uh, for for the same charity. And the family over the back, uh, from where my sister lives, uh, they they support the same work. So one of the things they've done is, um, between my sister's house and her friend's house over the back, um, they've they've created a kind of of walkway over over the back wall. Um, And the front doors of Penny's house and the front doors of a next-door neighbour's house, they're always open. Penny lives on her own. Quite often she's had one or two young men from Syria, Iraq, um, or Iran, or, or the Middle East, staying with her. Uh, a friend uh, next door lives alone, a single girl. Um, she had up to kind of six or eight failed asylum seekers um, living in her house. And they live in this strange kind of community. Um, where the doors are always open and you just walk in and out of each other's house. And you know what? The Lord adds those who are being saved. A bunch of of Middle Eastern guys coming to know the Lord through this strange arrangement of community. It's not without its stresses and, and frictions. So oneness is more than meeting together, but it can never be less than meeting together going beyond just the, the routine of church being a couple of meetings in a week. Second measure is when we stop counting stuff as our own. I'm counting it in some measure as, as the communities. I don't know about you, but kind of like, I guess for all of us, we want one us to stop somewhere short of our bank accounts. 
but it doesn't necessarily. When we want that, I suggest we quench the work of the Holy Spirit. The other important thing, I think, is that they, they're governed by the Bible. It's not just a happy community um, where they kind of um, make things up as, as they went along. It's a community governed by the apostles' teaching. It comes first in the list, and it governs all the rest. They're governed by New Testament teachings. Unity and community, oneness is impossible if there's no objective standard as to what community should look like or what they should do. You end up at best, don't you, with democracy. You do what pleases the most people, and we've seen how, how well that works in the country in the last few weeks. Or you end up at worst with acrimony, a cacophony of conflicting ideas. So we are a community of people governed by the apostles' teaching, governed by the Bible. And our community deepens as each individual's maturity increases. Maturity, maturity and community, uh, they grow together inevitably or, the, or they don't grow at all. Because to be mature is, is to be more open and committed to community. And to have community, to have unity, to have oneness, requires a maturity in Christ. That you've grown beyond simply self-seeking and seeing him as Lord. So Paul puts it like this, to the Philippian church, Philippians 2, you'll know this passage well. He says to them, if you've got any encouragement from being with Christ, he could be writing this to us now, if any comfort from his love, which I trust that you do, if you've got any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness um, and compassion, I trust we do, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. How on earth do you do that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Goodness me, Paul, that's a bit of a, a tall order, isn't it? That's a bit of a, a high target. No, he says, in your relationships with another, one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that Jesus had. It can only be one if we all have the mind that Jesus had. And what was the mind of Jesus? This very famous passage, being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So we follow the example of Jesus and we don't just grasp onto the advantages he has given us, but we share them out amongst ourselves. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. We have the mind of Christ, which is to, how do we serve other people in the Lord? Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord, you say, how... How can I find a heart to be maybe overlooked or of no consequence in the church? Well, Jesus humbled himself even, even to death, to being seen as, seen as a criminal, seen naked, hung up before everybody else. That's shame. 
none of, nothing in the, the shame of, of serving will ever be as great as that, I would expect. But because he did that, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that it's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So do you see how, how unity and, and maturity, uh, they grow together only by becoming increasingly mature in the mind of Christ does, does unity work and we trust one another to have the mind of Christ, which is I know that you're going to have the mind of Christ to me, which is you're going to serve me and you're going to be humble, you're not going to try to tread on me, not going to try to exercise power over me, because I know that you've grown up in Christ and you're going to have that humble servant attitude that he had. It goes on to say, do everything without grumbling or arguing. It's easier said than done, isn't it? So we could have, we could have called our vision statement this. Glorifying God by growing in maturity, community and ministry. We, we toyed with that for a long while. Uh, as elders, but it's kind of pretty boring, isn't it? Okay? Because I don't think it does justice to how the different pieces um, fit together. We want to be a church in which God moves, moves to save people. We want God to move sovereignly, and we want him to empower us and change us that we witness better. We want to witness through word-based oneness. We want God's word. We want to be increasingly committed to the understanding of God's word and to the impact of God's word on our lives so that we become more mature because maturity is vital for oneness. Maturity and and oneness are actually in many ways the same thing and the oneness goes back around in the circle and underpins our witness. All for the glory of Christ. Starting with you, me and us today.